let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we do pray uh, this morning that we would hear your voice. Hear your voice in your word and it would do its good work in our lives. That it would help us to trust Jesus for salvation. And through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training, we might be people equipped to do the good you have called us to do. And help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, despite our joy today, it's actually been a very sobering week for many, hasn't it, as the Christchurch massacre has continued to dominate our news over the week. Whether it's searching out the background of the murderer or thinking about the role of social media or changes to gun laws in New Zealand, or at the end of the week, footage of the funerals of those who had gathered peaceably to worship. And during the week, I received an email from one of our denomination's committees, the Church and Nation Committee, which read thus. Following last Friday's mass shootings in two Christchurch mosques, the Victorian Council of Churches Emergency Ministry has circulated its disaster tip sheet, dealing with the threat of active armed defenders in the houses of worship. The tip sheet provides information and advice on prevention, proper conduct during an active shooter crisis, and where to seek further information and help. I was being invited by that email to think about what I should do, what we should do, if a similar incident happened amongst us. Now, session will consider the details of the advice they've circulated, but for me, this invitation to think about a similar incident happening here raised a much more pressing, fundamental question to ask of myself and you this morning. If, God forbid, your life were to be suddenly taken away from you as you went about your normal routine, like coming to church, would you be confident about what would happen to you when you died? Can you be ready to die at any time? because Jesus has given you a sure hope. It's a big question and you might have already asked yourself that when you heard about what happened in Christchurch. Am I, are you, ready to die at any time because we have a sure hope in Jesus? That's the first question the events in Christchurch raised for me. But those events also raised another question. We have seen in response a great and appropriate emphasis on recognising our common humanity and a determination to resist the creation and fostering of division in our community. But I know, and you should know, that what people believe about God does divide our community. In particular, the Christian belief that Jesus is the Son of God and that God is one, yet three persons, Father, Son and Spirit, divides us from Muslim believers. Muslims reckons that belief to be what they call shirk, associating partners with God by ascribing divinity to Jesus and the Christian belief in the Trinity to be worshipping three gods. That's seen as being in direct opposition to the Muslim belief in the unity of God expressed in Surah 112. Say, Allah is one, the eternal God. He begot none, nor was he begotten, none is equal to him. 
And in the Quran, the deity of Jesus is explicitly rejected. Unbelievers are those that say, Allah, that's God, is the Messiah, the son of Mary. For the Messiah himself said, Children of Israel, serve Allah, my Lord and your Lord. He that worships other gods beside Allah shall be forbidden paradise and shall be cast into the fire of hell. Unbelievers are those that say Allah is one of three. There is but one God. The Messiah, the son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Other apostles passed away before him. Belief in the deity of Jesus and in the one God confessed as Father, Son and Spirit divides. So should we feel uncomfortable about maintaining our distinctive belief about Jesus, that he is God's Son come amongst us? For communal harmony, should we fall silent about these beliefs, minimise their place in our lives and confession? That's the second question Christ Church raised. Is it time to backpedal on our belief that Jesus is God, God the Son? Is it really so important as to risk fostering division in our community? So two big questions raised by what we have seen in Christchurch. Am I, are you, ready to die at any time because we can have a sure hope in Jesus? Is it time to backpedal on our belief that Jesus is God, God the Son, and though the first question might seem personal and the second more abstract theological, the answers to those questions can't be separated. Because as we'll see in John 10, the passage you heard read, confidence in God's salvation, having a sure hope, depends on Jesus being who he says he is, God's Son, one with the Father. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Uh, time has passed since the conversations Jesus has had in chapters 7 to 9 that were held at the time of the Tabernacles. Now it's December, a couple of months after that feast, the Feast of Dedication Hanukkah the feast that remembered the rededication of the temple by Judas Maccabeus in 164 BC. But the uncertainty and the division amongst the Jews about Jesus, who he is and how they should respond to him, continues. So they demand certainty. How long will you keep us in surprise? If you are the Christ, in suspense, sorry. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now that's probably a hostile question, seeking to trap Jesus in his words for the Christ, the term used by the Jews for God's promised king who would bring the end time rule of God, was a term full of political and military associations. In the minds of the people, this promised anointed ruler would not just be a descendant of David, but another David, a warrior, a conqueror, a king. And so a challenge to both the Roman invaders and the local powers. Jesus has avoided using that term of himself, even though, as we saw in John 7, it's been on the people's lips when they've been thinking about them. When the Christ appears, this is the Christ, is this the Christ? And without using the term, Jesus replies to his questioners, that the answer to their question has been plain in both what he has said and done. 
I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. I told you. Jesus has said so much that's identified himself as that promised ruler, the Christ to come. Just now in John 10, he has said that he is God's good shepherd. And the prophet Ezekiel was clear that God would put his servant David as the shepherd of his people in the last days. He has spoken of himself repeatedly as the son, which for Jewish hearers would bring to mind Psalm 2, a psalm that spoke of the Christ and his rule over the nations. And he's also described himself as the son of man, one to whom the kingdom would be given as was expected of the Christ. And while not using the word, he has told them, but they don't want to believe. And the works that he has done in his father's name, that is, with God's authority and power, also showed that he was sent from God, the one who would bring the promised end-time rule of God, that time of wholeness and holiness, of new creation, of the rule of the Christ. I mean, going through the Gospels, we've seen, haven't we? Jesus turned water into wine, cleansed the temple, healed with a word at a distance, healed a man paralysed 38 years, given sight to a man born blind. In fact, in feeding the 5,000, the crowd had recognised one whom they thought should rule, be king amongst them. So there was no shortage of evidence no reason not to identify Jesus as the Christ if they considered what Jesus had said and done. No cause for their continuing doubt and confusion. The problem was not the evidence but them. They were not believing because they were not wanting to believe. They were not believing, says Jesus, because you are not among or of my sheep. That's the reason for their unbelief. Well, what characterises Jesus' sheep. Three things. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus' sheep hearken, heed, respond to the words of Jesus. They know Jesus' voice is the voice of the good shepherd, the promise of God's shepherd who will give them life. And they are known by Jesus. He accepts them as his own. He knows them individually and they follow their shepherd. They trust him and are guided by him, guided by his voice, his word. And Jesus lets his questioners know how grievous it is that they are not his sheep, how grievous it is that they are not believing his word by telling them why being one of his flock matters. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus had spoken earlier about giving his sheep abundant life, laying down his life for their life. Here he makes it clear what that life he gives his sheep is. It is eternal life, the life of the age to come. They, those who hear his voice, believe his words and follow him, will never perish. This life is deathless life, no longer plagued by the mortality of this age, the death of our bodies that we know in this life. It is the life of the new creation, the new heaven and earth where death is no more. And this gift 
given to those who will listen to Jesus and follow him, given to you if you will listen to Jesus and follow him, says Jesus, is secure. No one will snatch his sheep from Jesus' hand. No thief, no false shepherd, no wolf, no false teacher, no proud religious leader, no earthly power, no human violence, not the devil himself, not even death. Now where we know our own frailty, our capacity to be deceived and seduced by flattery, our own weakness and little faith, our fear of loss and suffering, this is a great promise. Jesus says we can put our confidence wholly in him to keep us forever as we are his sheep. Listening to him, following him, we can be sure of life. But how can Jesus be so sure, so confident of his power to keep his own sheep? Well, it's because he is not working on his own. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. The father is God and Jesus is saying he has not come to possess his sheep independent of the father. They are God's gift to him, given to him. I mean, Jesus told us in John 6 that the father's given him these people that he might not lose any of them. John 6.39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. The father has given the sheep to Jesus for the very purpose that he save them and save them completely. The father, God, is right behind Jesus in keeping his people secure. No one will pluck them from the Father's hand, for no one is greater than the Father. Now think for a minute about what that means, because we all say, oh yes, God's greater than all, he's the creator. But think for a minute what it means if the great creator God is committed to saving you, if he is graciously for you. If that's the case, can a, can a terror attack, a moment of proud wickedness, separate you from your saviour and the life he gives if the almighty God keeps you? Would that act frustrate his will for you or deny his promise? Well, no. But what of a moment's inattention on the road or a diagnosis of cancer? Don't all things serve the purpose of the almighty God? Yes, they do. What of the torment of bullying co-workers, the apathy of chronic illness, determined rejection by your parents or by your husband and wife because of your belief in Jesus? What of the devil's deceit and malice that spreads lies through a culture, makes a society hostile to the gospel or raises up false teaching in the church? Can any of these pluck you from the Father's hand? prevent him from fulfilling his purpose that Jesus gives his sheep eternal life. None of them can. Think of our God. He exposes lies, turns people's malice back on themselves. He, well, the nations serve him and do his will. 
He brings what is from nothing. He gives life to the dead. He does whatever pleases him and knows no limits on his power. No one and nothing can take from the Father those he is determined to keep. And again, that is you. If you are Jesus' sheep, listening to Jesus and following him. Now, brothers and sisters, believers, I hope you recognise that here is a promise to cling to, a promise on which you can cry out to God in your weakness and need in your confusion and perplexity, a promise that allows you to face whatever comes with confidence and courage. Your God will keep you. But how does Jesus know this? That his sheep are given to him by his Father and that he and the Father are both determined to keep them? Well, it's because of his relationship with the Father. Because, as Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, that plainly doesn't mean that Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father are identical. The Son's not the Father and the Father is not the Son. The foundation of the statement is that the Father and the Son are and can be distinguished from each other, as Jesus does constantly. Even in this passage, verse 36, speaking of himself as the one consecrated and sent into the world by the Father. So in what sense then are the Father and the Son one? Well, they're one in purpose. What the Father wills, especially for his people, the Son wills. They're one in work. What the Father does, the Son does, whether in judging or giving life. They are one in word. The word the Son speaks is the word the Father has given him, one in power, one in love. In all these things, while the Father and Son are distinguishable, they are inseparable. You can't drive a wedge between the Son, Jesus, and the Father. Jesus is not going to promise something. And then we find the Father contradicted. The Son's purpose in giving eternal life to his sheep, those who hear his voice and follow him, believers in the crucified and risen Jesus, is the Father's purpose. It is the Son's being one with the Father that guarantees the salvation of Jesus' people. Well, Jesus' confidence in his power to save his clear statement of his relationship to the Father God infuriates his hearers. They want him dead and are going to form a lynch mob to make it happen. They pick up stones to stone him. But Jesus takes them on, verse 32. In his mercy to them, he challenges their vigilante action. He points them to the evidence that should change their mind. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Well, they say, <laughs> it's actually not what you're doing, Jesus. No, what we object to is what you are saying. Your claim about yourself, you, verse 33, being a man, make yourself God. By your claim in chapter 5 that God's your Father who shows you all things, by your claim that you are before Abraham, by your claim that you are one with the Father. The issue is what Jesus is saying about himself. 
And the issue in what he's saying about himself is crystal clear. They're not objecting to Jesus being a spirit-filled man. They're not objecting to Jesus being an enlightened man. They're not objecting to Jesus being a man whom God uses and then exalts. They are objecting to Jesus being a man who claims to be God, which makes Jesus' response even more interesting. See that? He doesn't say, no, you've got it all wrong. How could you think that I, a mere mortal, could claim to be God? He could have said that. He could have clarified that he was just a human, a servant of God, and a good man who was just a man would have said that. And it's serious, isn't it? Jesus' life is on the line here, but he doesn't say, no, you've got it wrong. Instead, he refers them, verse 34, to your law. Is it not written in your law? Uh, that's not because it's something they've made up, but because the scriptures of the Old Testament, here referred to by the name of the major part, the law, is what they revere, spend their life studying, claim as their authority. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus refers them to Psalm 82, a psalm that starts by saying, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. Now, this was a psalm that some of the rabbis of Jesus' day taught was speaking of Israel in the wilderness generation who'd been in God's presence, God's counsel at Sinai, and yet had failed to trust him. Now both Jesus and his audience agreed this psalm was the word of God. And so Jesus turns to the language of this psalm to give his audience another opportunity to pause and engage with what he's doing. In this psalm, God, the ultimate author of scripture, which is the word of God, calls mortal people. You see that? The very next line, verse 7 of the psalm says, like men you'll die, calls mortal people gods. Now says Jesus to his audience, we know the scripture cannot be broken. That is, never prove false, be set aside or annulled, never lie. So if God calls these mortal people gods, why do you stumble at me? Someone whom the Father's consecrated, that is, sanctified, set apart for himself to do his work and sent into the world. Why do you stumble at me saying, I am the Son of God? If God has in his word legitimated the recipients of his word being called God's, how can it be blasphemy for the one who brings the word of God to call himself the Son of God? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, from the description of the recipients of revelation, the description of those who failed in their obedience to God, to the greater to the appropriateness of the bringer of revelation, the one who perfectly does God's will, calling himself Son of God. It's an argument that has all its force on their common acceptance of the scriptures. The written word is the word of God. Now, it's not meant to be conclusive proof of Jesus' identity. 
Rather, it's meant to give them space to consider the whole picture of Jesus' actions and teaching and not stumble on a word. And so Jesus directs them again, verse 37, to what they have witnessed themselves in his ministry. But while it's not conclusive proof about Jesus' identity for them, it is actually for us clear evidence of what Jesus thinks of himself. Given an opportunity to deny that he is God, he does not take it. Rather, he justifies the way he speaks of himself, seeks to engage them with that. And then in verse 38, reinforces what he has said of his relationship with the Father. Oh, if I do the works of my Father, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Believe those works, says Jesus, so that you will know and start to understand the truth about me, that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now that is not a way to escape a lynch mob, but it is words given to help us, to help us understand Jesus' relation to the Father to help us understand how the Father and the Son can be one in purpose, actions and word, one in everything, including the things that God alone does, like creating, judging, raising the dead and saving his people. Words that help us understand how Jesus can do the work of God, speak the word of God without being a second God, a rival, a competing God. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's saying not only are the Son and the Father inseparable, they are indivisible while still being distinguished as Father and Son. If you come to Jesus, you will find the Father. If you come to the Father, you will find the Son. But the Father and Son are never interchangeable. Now there is a lot to think about here. Now, this is the basis for what in Trinitarian theology, and by the way, every believer is a Trinitarian. You believe, if you're a Christian, you believe in God as Father, Son and Spirit. This is what's called in Trinitarian theology, and if you like arcane terms, here's one, the mutual coherence of the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit, three persons, one God. There is a lot to think about in God's revelation of himself. But that's not surprising, is it? Because God is so much bigger than us and so different from us. He's spirit with none of our limits, almighty and eternal. But God does give himself a way of thinking about the relationship between the Father and the Son, how the Father can be in the Son and the Son in the Father, right back at the beginning of the Gospel, hasn't he? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, and the word was God. Now think for a moment of your words. You are in your word. That's right. The force and value of your word, especially of your promise, is as a communication from you. Your word, your promise, only has power as you are in your word. And your word is in you. It's how you make yourself known to yourself. You cannot think of yourself without a word. Try it. You'll see I'm true. 
as well. So your word is how you make yourself known to yourself. It's always in you as well as how you relate to the world outside you. Now, any illustration from human life will always be limited. But what is limited truth for us is fully true beyond our imagining for God. And brothers and sisters, let me appeal to you. When you meet a phrase like this that makes your head hurt, okay, the Father is in me and I am in the Father, don't be like people who walk away if they initially don't understand it. This is an invitation from the great creator God to know him. And it bears some thinking about. And it is actually wonderful that the Father and the Son are one and that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. That means that the words of the Son are the words of the Father, the words of God, even about himself. And for those who have just heard the promise of the Son, that he gives his sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of his hand. It is so good to know that this is a God-guaranteed promise, the promise of the Father and the Son, that Jesus' person, his being one with the Father, guarantees the truth of Jesus' word because such a promise is only guaranteed by God for no other than God can make such a promise, give eternal life. The Father being in the Son and the Son in the Father means that the work of the Son is the work of the Father. Now think of the wonder of that as this Easter you remember the incarnate Son going to the cross and dying for your sin. Oh, the Father being in the Son and the Son in the Father means we now know God in knowing his son through his word. We're not left in the dark about God. As Jesus says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Oh, the Father being in the Son and the Son in the Father means that the God we know in Jesus is a gracious God. A God has actually taken the initiative to save because it's the Father who sent the Son into the world, the Father who has given the Son for undeserving people and the Son who gives himself freely to that working love of the Father. The Father being in the Son and the Son in the Father means we know a faithful God because throughout the Old Testament you heard just one promise in Isaiah 35. God himself promised that he himself would come and save his people and he has. Oh, the Father being in the Son and the Son being in the Father means ours is not a self-help religion for people who are able. It is rescue. It's life for the dead, sight for the blind, liberation for the captives, the work of God, the work that God alone can do by the coming of the living God. Jesus being one with the Father because the Father is in him and he in the Father actually means we know in the death of the Son the love of God, Father, Son and Spirit. Not as a maybe, not as a, a thought, but flesh and blood dying to save love, powerful, faithful love. But Jesus being one with the Father because the Father is in him and he in the Father also means that there will be a continuing division in humanity. 
Jesus was offering his hearers, those who were still not his sheep, the opportunity to change. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, he said. He's offering you still, if you do not yet believe, an opportunity to change. He's saying, don't stumble at words. Consider all that I've done. Yes, consider my dying and rising and come to believe and know. But Jesus' insistence on being true to who he is in teaching his relationship with the Father, not backing down from it one iota, only inflamed his first hearers. They sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. That's just our race's age-old opposition to the true God, a God who is so much greater than us, who shows us by his being that our pretensions to be God and so claiming the right to decide for ourselves what and right, what is right and wrong is just a lie. But that is a lie we love. It's dear to us. We find it hard to give up. We're addicted as a race to it, enslaved to running our own lives, our own way and making our own gods and so Jesus, being one with the Father, guarantees the hostility of the world forever. You see, Jesus' first hearers wanted a political and military Christ, but God sent them the Son, who was so weak they thought they could kill him, and in his weakness shows the true power and wisdom of God. Our world, perhaps even you, thinks that at the very least a saviour should have some of the trappings of power and success, at least show in some way that he needs us and our approval and our consent and our work and not hang on a cross alone, despised and rejected. But God doesn't need us. The saviour just needs to be the son, God with us, and he will save by doing the Father's will, being one with him in purpose, word and deed. He will save alone, save through that murderous opposition getting its way, and God, Father, Son and Spirit, will get all the glory. But as we see in verses 40 to 41, some do believe. Believe because of the word. Hear the word of God's prophet John without a sign. And so where the gospel of the Son goes into the world, the word of the Son that says Jesus is God coming to save, there will always be division. As the Son calls his sheep to himself, those who hear and follow him. And that inevitable division should not make us hesitate to declare that Jesus is the Son, for only God can save from the judgment of God, only God can give eternal life. And it's only as we're convicted that Jesus is the Son of God, one with the Father, that we can live and die at whatever time and in whatever way God calls us home with the confidence of a sure hope, the confidence that the Word of God the promise of the never-lying almighty God to always keep Jesus' people and give them eternal life deserves. 
We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not because it is a human dogma, but because it is taught by Jesus. We believe that God has made himself known in Jesus as Father, Son and Spirit, not because it's a human dogma, but because it is taught by Jesus. The deity of the Son, that he, Jesus, is the Son of God, is the confession to which we must hold firm if we're believers. It is the confession which we must share to honour our saving God and to bring others to know the grace and love of the God who comes to save, the God who can be known in his Son. And it is the confession of Jesus' sheep. That's right, it's the confession of those who follow Jesus in loving the world, loving their enemies by offering them life in knowing the Father and the Son in the Gospel of Jesus. You see that Jesus is one with the Father because he is God from God is not a cause for embarrassed silence. It is the cause for hallelujahs. The living God has rent the clouds and come down to save his people as he said he would. And he alone could. Hallelujah. Father and the Son are one. The Father is in the Son and the Son in the Father forever. And our God, Father, Son and Spirit, saves. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you, those of us who trust the Lord Jesus, that we have heard today his promise, that as we listen to him and follow him, he will give us eternal life and we will never perish and none will pluck us from his hand. That it is the will of the Father and the Son to give Jesus' people life. We thank you for that. We thank you that that is a promise in which we can always rest, even as we're confronted with our own weakness and the hostility of the world and our frailty. We thank you for that promise. And we thank you that it is a sure promise because Jesus is your son, sent from your presence to save. And he is one with you. Grant us to be people who make the confession of the Son with joy, who gladly say that in knowing him we have come to know you, the true and living God, as Father, Son and Spirit. And help us, we pray, to share the gospel of the Son with all, for only you can give life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.